Hello everyone, and welcome back to Ear Read This. I'm Ash, your host, and following on from our episode on Frankenstein, today I am once again joined by Emily Ingram to talk a little more about Mary Shelley. Emily is the artistic director of Edinburgh's Some Kind of Theatre, who specialise in classic literary adaptations. Their latest production is William Shakespeare's Tragical History of Frankenstein, written by Ian Desher. Emily has also served as stage manager and prop master for The Show Must Go Online last year, and she is currently working on her own play based on Mary Shelley's life. To find out more about Emily's work, check the episode description box below. In the meantime, I began our discussion by asking Emily what got her started on reanimating Mary Shelley. Where did it start for you and and Mary Shelley? Was it reading Frankenstein or...? Actually, quite quite the opposite. Uh, my intention when I set out to write the play, whose working title is mm. "Write Like a Girl," and it was a title that doesn't quite fit it now. But my my original intention with it was to explore everything that came after Frankenstein, because rightly Frankenstein sits really large um, in. The Western English literature canon, and it's it's great. But Shelley wrote other things, and she wrote fiction, nonfiction. She did um, translation, and I wanted to dig into everything that she was after Frankenstein, and that was my intention at first. Uh, everything except, and slowly through the course of writing, developing this play, I've realised that you can't separate the two. An audience going along to hear about Mary Shelley and her life and her writing, if you don't give them Frankenstein, they're going to be a little bit upset, <laughs> I, I have come to realise. Um, so there are um, there is more of an exploration of Frankenstein and some of the potentially autobiographical moments of it. Uh, originally, there was only two references to Frankenstein at all in Write Like a Girl, and both of them were jokes. The figure that Mary Shelley meets in um, after her death in at the beginning of uh, Right Like a Girl makes a reference to, oh, and you also wrote um, some book when you were younger about uh, people digging up, uh, bringing bodies to life. And, and later on, he makes a reference to Frankenstein, meaning the monster. And there's, there's a little bit of dialogue around that where he goes, oh, I, I thought you'd mind that I, I said Frankenstein when I meant the monster. He's like, no, it's perfectly clear who you meant. And the conversation just moves on. So originally, it was just those two jokes and giving away all, all of the jokes in the play. <laughs> I, I realised you can't do one without the other. And also particularly in the aftermath of lockdown, I think not talking about what happens when you are stuck in the house with not much to do, mm. which is kind of how Frankenstein began. I, I think it would be almost cheating not to tap into that. I'm, I'm not saying people want to see plays about lockdown after lockdown, but I think it would be missing a way to make Mary relatable to audiences to not explore that almost lockdown moment that created Frankenstein. Is it sort of a, a monologue or is it um, is there sort of people within Shelley's life? Originally, it started out as a two-hander with um, one actor playing Mary, one actor playing everyone else in her life, plus this figure that she meets um, in the moments after her death as her as the electricity and chemical components of her her brain and body are shutting down. Um, she she meets this figure or or does she? Is it just her mind 
beginning to, to not be. And it explores her relationships to each of those figures and how those relationships come out in her work, how her relationship with Godwin comes out in her work, how her relationship with Shelley and Shelley's death comes out, how her relationship with Claire Claremont uh, comes out. And one of the huge things um, that the play explores is one of her final novels, The Last Man, and the Last Man is absolutely fascinating. It's about a plague that uh, spreads across the world in the 21st century. Is this sounding familiar again? But a plague that spreads across the world in the 21st century. And it's about uh, two figures who journey through that world and are experiencing that time of great crisis. And those two figures are very, very clear caricatures of Percy Shelley and of Lord Byron. And... It's really interesting reading these caricatures of them, which she wrote after their deaths, and trying to work out how much of this is memorialising and sensationalising and romanticising them, how much is of this is, is what she truly felt. Both of them, especially Percy, hugely wounded Mary throughout her life with their behaviour. Would this novel have happened if they'd been alive at the time of writing? And it, it's just really fascinating to look for. Again, I know that autobiographical things in fiction is a problem but it with such clear caricatures it's really possible to explore those things she makes it very difficult to ignore doesn't she absolutely absolutely um and the play taps into that and it taps into the last man it taps into who those people in her life wanted her to be who she actually was who she wanted them to be and it's about how we relate to the people um we love that's a sort of broader theme, but it, it does so through exploration of, of Shelley's life and her work and her, her less famous work. And you, in the blurb I've read for the play, you, you reference her own works uh, being forgotten. What was, what was her reputation like at the end of her life and what, what sort of attention had she got? What did she have? For a woman writer in the 1800s, she did okay, but that's damning with faint praise slightly. Um, she By the end of her life, she had struggled hugely um, with debt. It wasn't until the end of her life, uh, near the end of her life, that she really um, got much in the way of money from Percy Shelley's estate when his father finally died um, after quite a long struggle. Uh, she and her, her surviving son, also called Percy, were able to, able to do all right. But financially... Um, her work did not receive the acknowledgement that perhaps we we would have hoped it would, and certainly that she would have hoped it would. Um, she she struggled hugely, and although yes, she did receive acknowledgement from Frankenstein eventually when it was published under her own name, she was never fully happy with how her other books did. Um, she'd she'd read five brilliant reviews and one that was a little bit critical, and and it would be that one that stuck with her, which I think will probably resonate with a huge number of creative people. Certainly, she did not get the recognition that she wanted. It is really only Frankenstein that has had that worldwide reputation. Yes, people might have heard of Matilda. Yes, The Last Man is growing in popularity and was adapted into a film not hugely long ago. But during during her lifetime, she wasn't satisfied um, with with how things went. And the the blurb also mentions the famous mother she she never knew. We, we've we've mentioned her um, briefly. Could you describe? Uh, it's a massive question, but could could you describe the influence of of Wollstonecraft on on Mary? 
Absolutely. Um, one of the ways I describe the influence uh, Mary Wollstonecraft had on Mary Shelley's life to other millennials is I, I say to them, you know, in the Harry Potter books, when Harry meets anyone and they're like, oh, you look just like your father, but you have your mother's eyes. And you know, his, his parents, that he never knew like their, their reputation and who they were and how they looked followed him. It was like that for Mary. Everything she did, it was like, oh, that mannerism, so like Wollstonecraft. Oh, her golden gingery hair, so like Wollstonecraft. And Byron wanted to meet her because he wanted to meet Mary Wollstonecraft's daughter. He wasn't so interested in who Mary was, but he was interested in who she was as Wollstonecraft's daughter. And people were fascinated by her, like absolutely fascinated about who the daughter of William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft could be. And that was a huge amount of pressure for her. She'd never known her mother, but very famously, one of the one of the ways that she learned to read and write was by um, tracing the letters on her her mother's grave at St Pancreas. Oh, and yeah, Wilson casts cast such a long shadow across Mary's life, despite the two of them not meeting in in Mary's living memory. Wilson Craft died when Mary was um, not many days old at all. Um, because of mm. an infection essentially acquired because doctors weren't great at washing their hands back then, um, which is absolutely dreadful. Wollstonecraft herself was a fascinating figure. People quite rightly um, call her the mother of feminism uh, sometimes. And you know she, she wrote these huge essays about the rights of women um, and about how women should be educated and how mothers should be involved in the rearing of their um, children, uh, which for you know some upper and middle class families at the time was a, a slightly unusual thing. Like there was quite a hands off approach of you know and the methods of handing kids over to wet nurses and governesses and, and things like that. Mm. And she she just wrote a lot about how to raise daughters, which no one was really that about in the 1700s because they were like oh well you just kind of wait until they get old enough to be married and you marry them off don't you um job done yeah job done and you know Wollstonecraft was hugely involved in the artistic and literary and philosophical and the philosophical a word I briefly forgot how to say philosophical uh, scenes of the time and that's how she uh met Godwin side note she and Godwin hated each other when they first met. They met at a party for philosophers and you know literary um, bigwigs and, and and things like that. And they argued all night. They re uh, they recognised that they were the two cleverest people in the room according to their letters, and they just fought with each other. A love story for the ages, huh? But Wollstonecraft was this hugely influential figure, beloved, um, a very strong personality. Uh, she founded schools for women. One of the things I explore in Write Like a Girl is what could have happened if they'd known one another. Uh, Wollstonecraft does mm. feature and does eventually have a conversation with um, Mary right at the climactic moment of the script. I contemplated not having them meet, having Wollstonecraft kind of this separate, almost narrative character. And it, it felt right to reunite them and it felt right to have these two very powerful, very interesting women able to talk to each other at last. So related to that, what are the challenges for you writing a writer? I'm always really interested in, in people writing about literary people and how you manipulate their voice, whether you, is it creating a voice for them? Is it a bit of trying to find as many 
sort of references as possible and 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 rebuild their voice almost uh, sounding a bit too frankenstein-y there but but what, what was that process like for you it's interesting that you say um rebuild shelley's voice because one of the ways i was originally writing the script was entirely in words taken from her letters and her diaries the trouble is wow some of the most interesting parts of her diary have uh, some of the most interesting pages or what we suspect might be the most interesting pages have been ripped out and whether she did that herself or whether you know her victorian ancestors went oh this is a bit controversial <laughs> that's going in the fire we, it's difficult to know but certainly there's stuff around claire claremont and mary's relationship with her and her possible romantic and sexual relationship with percy shelley those pages are gone um there's um a point where may have been pregnant it may have been with percy shelley's kid it's not entirely clear and those pages gone so you don't want her to be silent on those absolutely um because i think to to rely on the diaries and letters we have is to rely on a victorian anti-feminist i know that's a slightly anachronistic word to put it, but a victorian anti-feminist silencing of mary's diaries um so i that fell by the wayside um and although her letters and diaries and, and the language within it have been influential all to my work they had to drop away as the only um, way to write her. In terms of writing a writer, I suppose the challenges are you know, to be careful not to make it a self-insert character as, as a writer. Um, there's always that temptation to put a little bit too much of your writing process, to project a little bit too much of your writing process onto the writer you're writing about. The, the other challenge with writing a historical figure is lots of people have quite a clear image in their mind of who Mary Shelley was. Uh, rightly, that's quite a kick-ass image of this woman who wrote Frankenstein, ran away from home, um, kept her husband's uh, heart in a drawer after he died, stood up to <laughs> Lord Byron and his nonsense. And that's that's totally right. She was kick-ass. She was cool. But one of the things I'm interested in exploring um, are the vulnerabilities that the society she was living in at the time didn't allow her to express. And going on just that, sort of pop culture image of her as this cool goth lady doesn't completely allow that. One of the challenges there is knowing that some people's expectations will be dashed there and that's something that we just have to deal with. Oh, it sounds absolutely fascinating. What what was your um what was your research process like and and were there any surprises for you? in uh, reading about Mary Shelley? So my my research, uh, my research process is still uh, in stacks of books all around me. I'm just going to describe it um, for you guys. There's um, the autobiographies are here. There's the Muriel Spark one. And then there's uh, Romantic Outlaws by Charlotte Gordon. Um, and there's Catherine Harkup's The Making of the Monster Science Behind Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which I mentioned um, in the Frankenstein section of the podcast. There's the autobiographies there. There's her diaries there. Um, there's her work that isn't Frankenstein um, just uh, on top of my desk. And it is a <laughs> pile that if the cats jump on, will come clattering down. And then there's the different editions of Frankenstein um, themselves and the accompaniments to them as well. Um, and then The Last Man, 
I cannot tell you how brutalized this copy has been. It's got dog ears, it's got sticky notes, it's got pen notes in it. I, I know some of your listeners will be cringing at that, but there's dog ears, it's corners turned down, it's it's dreadful. My my research process is just everywhere. Um, and it's it looks like a conspiracy theorist <laughs> at the moment. So my, my research process was reading um, and rereading and trying to get hold of as many biographies of her as um, I could try to immerse myself in her work and her diaries to get a good idea of her voice. But also it was taking the themes of her life, um, the sort of really human, really raw, really horrible themes like loss and death and issues to do with childbirth and, and infant death and, and going, okay, we know all of these literary things about her. These are the things that really humanise her. These are her moments of pain and emotion. What do I what do I have to say about those? What do I wish she could have been able to say about them if she lived in a slightly later society or a slightly more open society? It's really basic, but I've I've got a mind map um, on on the wall of those different themes and what she was able to say what she might have liked to say and and where I go from there as a playwright with each of those um, themes in, in the different um, sort of scenes and, and moments of the play. Uh, we, we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but what, ha, um, how far along is the, the project and what, what kind of um, performance do you see it, see it getting whenever it is ready? It hasn't been a linear process to write the play because it's gone through quite a few different genres. Um, so at the moment I am in, um, the first draft of a very different theatrical style from what it started out as. Uh, it started out as a spoken word piece, a uh, very sort of fringe show, um, one microphone, um, and then it became more traditionally theatrical. Uh, and it's it's come back almost to nearly a gig theatre style, and I'm not sure whether that's where it's going to stay settled. But this year, certainly ideas around uh, this year and last ideas around digital theatre have been discussed quite a lot for reasons I'm sure <laughs> familiar with. And it, it is a piece I'm finding that could work on screen. And there's um, a lot of theatre directors and, and theatre writers out there who are saying not every piece of theatre needs or wants to be a piece of digital theatre. But I think this one could be if I kind of set the right things in in, in motion in the script, I think it could translate um, to this medium if it, it needs to. Um, as speaking of digital theatre, I know you were involved in the show Must Go Online last year, which was just amazing. What what was your involvement like, and 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 your uh, what are your sort of reflections on the project? I mean, I know it's still going on. I don't know if you're still involved, but that run of the works of Shakespeare was just unlike anything else I've seen. Thank you. The show Must Go Online, as as you know, started in March last year. Rob Miles, its creator, tweeted, oh, does anyone want to do a weekly reading of a Shakespeare play? Uh, we'll do the first folio in the order it's thought to be written. And loads of people signed up. Like, loads of people wanted to be involved. Loads of people wanted to watch, which was incredible. You know, it ended up on Newsnight. It ended up in various newspapers. It was incredible. And after a couple of weeks of doing this, uh, Rob and uh, Sarah Miles, the project's producer, went, this is becoming bigger than us. We need additional people. And once again, Rob got onto the Twitter. I'm not sure why I'm saying the Twitter. Rob got onto the twi- onto Twitter, <laughs> and he did a shout out for theatre makers who have experience of Shakespeare, experience of producing, experience of stage management. And I went, "Ooh, 
well as being a writer and director, I am those things. And I got in touch. I got an email address. I started chatting to them on Zoom like this. And within two days, I was stage managing the show must go online, which felt amazing. You know, this thing that I'd seen on the news, I was like, oh my goodness, I'm suddenly involved in this. I'm sending tutorials for how to make swords out of cardboard to actors in <laughs> Australia, in India, in Canada, in America. It, it was incredible. One thing I've really enjoyed about the show must go online is each week they were trying to do something new. They weren't just keeping it to the kind of actors and their heads and shoulders reading Shakespeare on Zoom. It became more performed readings than just readings of Shakespeare, and it did innovate. It did explore technology, and it was incredible to be a part of that, and it was incredible to get to direct as well, um, starting with the mechanical scenes in Midsummer Night's Dream and, and then exploring their pop Shakespeare series, uh, you know, Shakespeare, Shakespeare's Mean Girls, uh, Shakespeare's Christmas Carol, written by Ian Desher. So... Yeah, it was absolutely wonderful to be a part of. Um, so as stage manager, were you there, you know, when it was live, trying to make sure everything went smoothly? Yes. Um, explaining <laughs> Zoom stage management uh, to people has become that's what I talk about most in lockdown, which maybe maybe is an indication of a, a very sad life. But the show must go online uh, runs um, on Zoom uh, in a in similar format to the one we're talking on uh, right now. And my job as stage manager is to make sure the right people are on stage at the right time unmuted. That's that's it in a nutshell. It's a slightly wider role than that. Sometimes it involves creating pictures of actors in uh, in coffins for Caesar's funeral or things like that. Uh, and you know that can be projected as virtual backgrounds. So you know, I'm sort of messaging writers going, "Can you cover yourself in fake blood and take a photo so I can Photoshop you into a nice coffin?" Cheers, uh, things like that. Uh, but it also involves working with um, the two swings who are involved in every production. Swing is someone who steps in if the actor who's supposed to be in that role isn't in that role for whatever reason. If their internet crashes out, um, if their dog suddenly starts barking so much that they can't do the scene because you know people are in their living rooms with their pets with you know small toddlers who might suddenly need something so um i liaise with the swings so halfway through a show swing might be enjoying macbeth's performance or you know listening to hamlet's to be or not to be and they'll get a message from me being like hamlet's internet connection is looking dodgy are you ready to go are you in the right place in the script okay let's go you know so yeah an awful lot of liaising with actors and trying to keep the show online so um do you do you envisage your uh play being obviously being live uh in the same 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 way and it, would it still you're still thinking sort of two two actors streamed i love the idea of doing it live i think liveness is one of the crucial parts of theater uh, for me, I, I know it's not always possible to experience this live for, for a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. However, for Write Like a Girl and for some of the transformations um, that one of the actors has to go um, through in terms of um, costume and physicality, I think a non-live filmed, uh, pre-recorded filmed version of it would allow for more interesting camera angling as those transformations mm. take place and be able to tell that story uh, and, and tell the story of those transformations in a more compelling way. That said, a more experienced digital director than me might might have other ideas about how, about how those things have could be done live. And one of the exciting things for me, I, I do direct my own work 
quite frequently. One of the exciting things for me is right like a girl as a play, I have said I will not direct. I will hand over to someone else and see what they what they make of it. So I don't, I don't need to worry about it, but I, I think it could certainly work digitally. Yeah, it's so, it's so exciting just feeling that it's a real kind of frontier. I think that that was one of the things that was so impressive about The Show Must Go Online was the as you say, the sort of transformation between what you would expect, something that looks a bit like this, people on their webcams reading, to really sort of pushing that as far as it can go and um, and seeing what people can do on their own and left their own devices, literally. Yeah, I, I love that pun. Um, and I think there's something very exciting about digital theatre being this relatively new medium and they're not necessarily being right or wrong answers or particular conventions within already. I think that allows for a lot more creativity in some ways because people aren't confined by the tropes of the genre yet and also it does put a remarkable amount of power in actors hands as you say people are left to their own devices and you know actors um have to be their own camera person almost and and you know even even the angle at which you choose to have your laptop screen can influence your audience perception of them. You know, if, if you're towering over your screen, um, that changes your the audience's perceived status of your character. So actors have a huge amount of power in their hands. And yes, you know, I, I can say to them um, all the live long day, hey, have your eyeline at a certain point, but I can't actually, you know, do that for them. So they can really change an audience's experience of the show just from really simple things like how the, the, the device is angled but for better or for worse and, and that's really exciting to have that power in in the hands of performance terrifying as well from a directorial point of view um but also really exciting from a directorial and, and performer point of view i uh, just, just the, the confinement just seems just seems really exciting the sort of uh you know i was going to say zooming in i can't stop making crappy uh puns at the moment but the the sort of reducing of whatever the visible space is of a of a play to this little box and um you know filling it the other thing that's exciting about the little boxes is unless you're plugging your zoom call into a different piece of software everyone's box is the same size on zoom you know Mm. second spear carrier from the left is the same size as mcduff in you know when when you're carrying your branches true you know and you can kind of go on a choose your own adventure with zoom theater because you can go right actually what does second spear carrier from the right think about malcolm's speech okay cool like whereas in theater or in film the way things are blocked the camera angling um the editing kind of forces audience gaze to be on a certain point zoom you you can watch the extras and you can go on that journey with them in in a far more free way than you can in other mediums and that's cool and that is all we have time for today i'm afraid a huge thank you once again to my special guest emily ingram remember you can find out more about emily's work in the episode description box below thank you all for listening and until next time i wish you all some very happy reading 